Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers, uh, particularly through the Library of America, at around 100 pages an episode. Um, In this episode, we will conclude our study of Herman Melville's very impressive, uh, very much maligned, Marty. In the last quarter of the novel, some things come together. It has an open ending, but yet we do get some um, closure. The novel begins began with a sailor who saves a mysterious woman, Ela. He then travels to a mythical land called Marty, which just means the world in a Polynesian language. He loses Ela, who kind of just vanishes from the story, and he joins together with the demigod king, Medea, and his companions. They search Marty island by island, and as they do, they learn about dozens of different ways of life on the various islands. They have just left Dominica, the land that is an allegory for Great Britain. As, as the fourth quarter of the novel opens, our party is passing around wine and philosophizing, and the philosopher Babalanja begins to make a case for social equality while they're passing around the wine. And there's a strong suggestion here that the act of passing around you know, a glass of wine or a bottle of wine is kind of an expression of social solidarity and equality uh, that really doesn't fit with the great vast hierarchies throughout the islands of Marty. So here's the argument that Babalanja gives for really criticizing some degree of social inequality. But if all boars be the immortal sires of endless dynasties of immortals, how little do the pious practitions bear in mind their magnificent destiny when hourly they scorn their companionship. And if here in Marty they cannot abide in equality with plebeians, even at the altar, how shall they endure them side by side throughout eternity? And since the prophet Alma asserts that paradise is almost entirely made up of the poor and despised, no wonder that many aristocrats of our islands pursue a career which according to some theologies must forever preserve the social distinctions so sedulously maintained in Marty. And though some say that at death everything earthly is removed from the spirit, so that clowns and lords both stand on a footing yet, yet, according to popular legends, it has ever been observed that the ghosts of boors when revisiting Marty, that invariably they rise in their smocks. And regarding our intellectual equality hereafter, how unjust, my lord, that after whole years and days and nights consecrated to the herd gaining of wisdom, the wisest the hard gaining of wisdom, the wisest Mardian of all of us should in the end find the whole sum of his equi- attainments, at one length, leap outstretched by the various dunce, suddenly inspired by light divine. Um, so this is the kind of criticism of, of aristocracy and monarchy you get, I guess, in Tom Paine, even in common sense, that, you know, it's just genetic lottery that allows some people to be um, deemed better than others. So they sail around Dominica and they see the attached land of Caledonia, which there he's not even trying to really hide the allegory that this is Scotland. Um, there's a neighboring island of Verdana. And these are pretty clear what they're supposed to mean. That's Ireland. Verdana is Ireland. Then they approach Profiro. This is the allegory for Europe. And in the last episode, I mentioned that the context of Melville writing this novel is to some degree the revolutions of 1848. 
Um, so as they approach um, Proifo, it is struck by a volcano, which prevents their visit. This may be just a, a straight up comment on the revolutions of, of 1848. Um, here's what Medea says when looking upon this. Hard must it go with Franco's king. France's king, I guess. Franco's king, when his people rise against him with the red volcanoes. Oh, for a fool to crush them. Hard to, with all who rule in broad profiro. And may she we seek survive the conflagration. So, there it is. No chance to go there. Um, I'm not going to get into reading it, but there is in this novel a long description of the different kingdoms of Profiro, and you can kind of one-to-one -one and connect these to different European states at the time. Uh, he talks about basically the equivalent of Russia, the equivalent of France. There's a Spain there, too. Um, Anyways, if you're interested in that kind of, you know, allegory, he doesn't say much about each of them, and, and it's it's pretty clear um, that it's there's, there's not much to learn from it. Anyways, um, now during this, we see another example of art making the point more clearly and elegantly than the philosopher. Um, so Babylon just says something kind of pretentious here. He says, "My lord." Wherein she hide, ne'er yet did Ila lurk in this profiro, nor have we missed the maiden, noble Taji, in not touching as its shores. And later on, a few lines later, Yumi replies, yet vineyards flourish over buried villages. And it's just a much nicer sentiment um, of the cost of destruction and the, the, the how there's re rebuilding after a catastrophe, the vineyards growing over the buried villages. Um, anyways, they arrive next in Vivencia, which is the closest we've been to the United States since this podcast began, actually. Um, since I started with Melville, I started with novels all set in the Pacific. Um, that, that's just life. But now we finally get to see a America and may and perhaps we have an idea of what Melville thinks about America. They go to the quote central temple where the delegates of the people debate. So it's a republic. There's no king. It's a republic. Um, essentially, this is Congress. The most loud Republicans, the most vocal ones are from a province called Hio Hio. Seemingly, this is just Ohio. Um, the politician Alano gives a very jingoistic speech, attacking Dominica, attacking their former leaders. Babalanja suggests that they'll just do better if they work together. So there should be an alliance between Dominica and Vivencia. But most of the Republicans in Vivencia don't want any of that. And these politicians from Hio Hio, um, the most loud, vocal antagonists to Dominica, are the seem to be the most powerful. Now there appears later on in the debate a very long speech criticizing democracy, which is just read from a scroll. It's not clear who wrote it or how it got there. Um, the narrator suggests Babalanja maybe wrote it. Uh, it's also suggested that Medea wrote it because the themes in the speech uh, parallel with things both of these characters have already said. Um, the speech is very much worth reading. It suggests that democracy is essentially a delusion of the youth. And with the emergence of civilization will come the need for more authoritarian systems. 
Um, but I, I'm not going to read it here for you. But if you want to pull it up, it's chapter 161 or page 1,187 in the Library of America version. And most of this is just the reading of this long polemic against democracy. Now, since this literally comes out of the sky, the chapter is called, they hear a voice, they hearken upon a voice from the gods. So even though it's played with that maybe Babalanja wrote this or maybe Medea wrote it, in fact, the author is telling you right there, it comes from the author himself. So this might be, or, or maybe the closest we get to a direct ex explanation of, at least as far as this book's concerned, of Melville's criticism of American democracy. They then go to the southern part of Vivencia, and of course it has slavery. Uh, Medea responds to this by saying that social systems emerge out of the lands from which they come. So it's almost like a Toynbee-esque argument. Um, of course, Melville couldn't have read uh, Toynbee's arguments that each civilization is really a product of its reaction to its environment that emerges out of. So this is on page 1191, chapter 162. Um, this is a really short quote. The soil decides the man. And ere birth, man wills not to be born here or there. These southern tribes have grown up with this thing. Bond women were their nurses, and bonds men serve them still. So that's a uh, rather unfortunate conceit um, right there. Um, of course, the United States of Melville's day was very sectional and very divided by regions. And it's, it's you know, people were trying to explain how these differences emerged between the North and the South and the West. And perhaps the, the ecological argument has some, um, it should be considered. Next, they travel to Canada, uh, which, well, it's essentially Canada. Here, it's called Columba, and they witness gold miners at work. Um, Babalanja knows immediately that Ila is not here and proceeds to uh, question the obsession of people with gold. Were all the isles gold globes set in a quicksilver sea, all Marty within a desert. Gold is the only poverty, of all glittering ills the direst, and that man might not impoverish himself thereby, Oro hath hidden it with all their bands, saltpeter and explosives, deep in the mountain bowels and riverbeds. But man yet will mine for it, and mining dig his doom. Well, there it is. Um, Nothing to be gained by obsessing over gold. This is not the first time that Babalanja just predicted immediately that Ely would not be in a place. I think it happened at one other island where he just listens to Mohi's explanation of the place and then concludes Ela cannot be here. Yeah, they might still visit it, but it's not really um, a serious investigation. They move on um, and visit an old sage named Doxodox, and this just becomes an opportunity for Melville to question the focus on rhetoric and grammar and, on, and the use of linguistic tools to get at the truth. The conversation that emerges is, is really funny and totally bizarre. It's, it's kind of great fun. Um, and, th and this is kind of Melville's pattern. Uh, if you go to an island, you learn something, and he plays with an idea, and then he moves on. And yeah, this is the way the novel is. Um, next, they go to the land of Hulumulu, uh, the land of cripples. 
Their king is King Yoki. He's a blind, deaf man without legs. Um, now, what to make of this place? Um, I don't really know what this is supposed to mean or be. The interesting thing about it, obviously, is that the people of Hulumulu are horrified at the party. They see the people with two legs, two arms, without any deformities or physical ailments, and says, ah, so those are the horrible monsters. Um, it might just be a, an issue of relativism there. Eventually, and I, I'm skipping over a few sections here because uh, I want to include the novel at some point, but they reach the island of Serenia, and here they find a utopia governed by love. Um, Alma, the, the Christ figure in the novel, seems to be here in a more authentic way than in the previous island centered on religion that they, 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 they've witnessed, they went to, um, as I talked about in the last episode. An old man, it's not a king, not a pontiff, not, not a great leader, but an old man explains to them how their society works and how they, they, they function on the principles of Alma. This society is in, that direct, is, is in direct contrast to the religious island they observed, which bastardized and corrupted the principles of, of Alma. We hold not to that one man's word should be gospel to the rest, and that Alma's word should be gospel to us all. And not by precepts would we have some few endeavor to persuade, but all by practice fixed convictions that the life we lead is the life for all. We are apostles, everyone. Wherever we go, our faith we carry in our hands and hearts. It is our chiefest joy. We do not put it wide away six days out of seven and then assume it. In it we all exult in joy as that which makes us happy here, as that without which we could not be happy nowhere, as something meant for this time present and henceforth an I. It is our vital mode of, be of being, not an incident. And when we die, this faith shall be our pillow. And when we rise, our staff, and at the end, our crown. For we are immortal. Here Alma joins us with our hearts, confirming nature's promptings. Now, Babalanja hears this, and he has some doubts. Um, he has some doubts, and he responds, and he goes back and forth. But eventually, Babalanja becomes convinced that, yeah, there is truth in this island. And it's also, as a society, more well-functioning than others. But it's not a, a utopian community. It's not idealistic. It's not even egalitarian, necessarily. There are rich and poor on the island, but everyone has a basic means of survival. So there's a, everyone's basic needs are met. The children are cared for. So it seems to be a society that kind of minimizes um, social problems. It is defined, though, as an island governed simply by love. Um, the master's great command, this is quoting him, the master's great command is love. And here do all things wise and all things good unite. Love is in all. The more we love, the more we know. And so reversed. Oro we love. This island and our wide arms embrace all Marty like a reef. How can we err thus feeling? So there it is. There's kind of our utopia. Um, Babalanja realizes that he should stay in Serenia. He announces to Taji that his quest for Ela will be in vain. So he kind of gives some bad news at this point um, that he's never going to find Ela. Uh, and maybe that this is the best of all possible worlds right here in Serenia. 
He tells Medea to return home, to renounce his throne. He should renounce his throne and become essentially just a commoner, um, but a leader still. He should abandon this kind of absolute monarchism that he had embraced earlier in the novel. Um, Mohi really has no future, so the advice he gets from Babalanja is simply to retire. Now, he wants Yumi to continue to explore and to learn all about Mardi, becoming exposed to all of life's possibilities. So, again, we have these three generations reflected in these three intellectuals. Um, Mohi, the oldest, really has nowhere else he can grow. His creativity, if he had any, is washed up. Um, Babalanja has, has kind of found his truth, so he's me re reaching the end of his quest for truth. Yumi um, still has more exploring to do, still youthful, still has more to create. Uh, so I think there's a nice little argument here kind of embracing the creativity and, and the, the ambition of youth. Now, Taji, who's been pretty silent, he's actually been silent for like almost hundreds of pages here. I mean, there's a few quotes here and there where he'll he'll say something and jump in, but he's not really having a big part in the narrative. He's a very passive figure. Um, and that's really the biggest problem with this novel, perhaps. But he states that he'll keep looking for Ela. So here... He says, I'm going to keep going. Um, I'm not content until I find her. The remaining members of the party travel to their final island, which is the final island described in the text, uh, Flozella, and it's here that Hasha dwells. Hasha is this um, kind of queen that's been chasing after Taji since the um, early part of the novel, uh, at least chasing him with these handmaids. Well, finally, he, he meets Hasha, and she tempts Taji with worldly pleasures and wealth. Taji rejects them, embracing his fruitless quest for Ela, literally jumping into the water, into an image that he thinks is Ela. Um, eventually, they return to Odo. Medea abdicates, as he was told to, by Babalanja. And then Taji departs, being pursued by the Avengers. Uh, the Avengers are still trying to get their revenge. So Taji is still going to be wandering the earth. Uh, so that is... Marty. Um, now, when I started talking about this book three episodes ago, I, I said I like this book. Um, I still like it. I, I understand why it's not for everybody. And I realize I probably only touched one or two percent of what Melville was actually trying to accomplish. And it's possible I'm wrong about most of what I said. But um, maybe by looking at some of these major themes and tropes, and ideas in the novel, we can get a bit closer to Melville's thesis. So I'm going to do what I do at the end of all books that I'm going to look at and just mention some of the major themes in the book with the goal of someday being able to, at least in our minds, put together an index of the major themes of American writers. Um, so the first of these is democracy. Melville is less critical of democracy as such as he is of a like a is as he is a, the critical of this belief that democracy is a skeleton key to political progress um that's really the criticism um for him it's just not that simple um if serena is the utopia we reach it's not fully socially egalitarian there's a spiritual equality based on this broad principle of love there's a lack of lack of want but there's not full social equality um the speech given before the people of Avencia, this magical, the scroll that just sort of appeared, um, at, you know, as a 
do us as machina, I guess. We can take this as Melville's own words, since they do not appear, you know, they do appear literally from the gods. This speech merely warns Americans not to be too arrogant about their political progress and say that other systems and other places have their logic, their faults, and their benefits. Um, and maybe that's kind of one big theme of the whole book. That's why they travel around investigating these places. Uh, so that's democracy. A, a second major theme in this book is truth. Uh, Melville makes one of his central characters a philosopher. Many pages are spent on the question of how to achieve truth and whether the quest for truth is even possible. Maybe Ela is simply a symbol for truth. That we do not get there, we now we don't really get to Ela, um, suggests that Melville does not really know what truth is anyways, but he is sure it exists. And while Babalanja finds serenity in, in, in a home and he finds something he believes to be truth, that's not really fully satisfying for all the characters. Uh, Taji wants to keep going, and he even, and Babalanja even tells Yumi to keep going, that there's more truth to be found there. So even Babalanja, although retiring, essentially, is open that truth is still out there. Um, a third theme, frontier. Uh, I think we can take Marty as a story of the frontier. Our understanding of the American frontier these days is heavily influenced by Frederick Jackson Turner. Uh, now, Turner believed that the frontier was kind of a crucible for creating democracy. And, and he had concerns about the end of the frontier and what that would mean for the future of democracy. But Melville came before Turner and could hardly have looked at the American frontier that way. Um, but I think looking at Marty as a story of the frontier allows us, you know, to put the book alongside Omo and Taipei, which have a strong theme of empire. And we kind of can talk about this as a trilogy on the American frontier and its opportunities. So this allows us to look at incidents such as the freeing of Ela in a new light. Um, the freeing of Ela was done through the violence of the indigenous people um, and in interve intervention in their social customs. Uh, the cycle of violence that this act begets is never completed. And as the novel ends, the char characters are literally being chased by the Avengers. So this, the violence of the frontier certainly is a theme of Taipei and Omu. And we see it here in, in Mardi as well. Another theme is, is just religion or more precisely the critique of organized religion. Um, I don't think much more needs to be elaborated on this. I talked about it at length in episode, the third episode on Mardi. One of the central moments in the book is the party's experiences at the island of Marama, which is a model of the organized Christian religion and all of their sins. Inequality, corruption, and most importantly, divergence from the first principles of their religion are really key. Um, now, one of the events I passed over, I think, introduces another theme we can talk about. Um, and this was a brief visit to an island of mining, the lands of King Clanco. It's, it's kind of a really uh, onomatopoeic, poetic name. Is that how it's said? Onomatopoeia. King Clanco. Um, and it's an island devoted just to mining. And here's what Mohi says about it. Know ye not that here are the mines of King Clanco, who scourged, scourged slaves toiling in their pits, so nigh approach the volcano's bowels to hear its rumblings? Yet they must work on, cries Clanco, the mines still yield, and daily his slaves' bones are brought above ground, mixed with the metal masses. 
So King Clanko is a, is just a model of the uh, abusive, violent, capitalist exploitation of the land and the people to extract resources. Um, that will come up again in later works by Melville, like uh, the Tartarus of Maids is what comes to mind there. Um, a final theme I want to emphasize here, and again, this is probably just touching the surface of what we could get out of this novel, but this episode is already going on for quite a while. That would be inequality and wealth and how to mitigate it. Um, Sarania, this, the closest we get to a utopia in this novel, does have inequality, but it doesn't have poverty. And I think that's maybe a suggestion of Melville's goals. He's not, he's clearly not a, a total social egalitarian, um, but he is critical of the worldly lives. He's a critical of wealth. He's a critical of accumulation. And he's critical of drastic inequalities in wealth and power. It is significant that he spends, that he sets the, the money of the land to be human teeth. So the money in Marty are human teeth. This suggests that wealth comes at the expense of human life. Social progress may not exist or may, or may be very difficult. And certainly there's not a, a, a magic potion that can bring us that, like, so not like democracy suddenly, in Melville's mind anyways, democracy is not going to propel us into a utopia. Um, in places that are rich, in societies they visited that were rich, wealth doesn't really get redirected to social progress. It again, instead gets redirected to odd behaviors or growing human suffering. And we see this in the islands that have these very vain kings with gratuitous castles and and and. and dwellings. Um, there was one earlier in the novel that has this massive harem. This is, of course, his point in Taipei and Omo, too, that just because the Western capitalist empires are richer and more powerful doesn't mean they have a better system of life and doesn't mean they can't be corrupting. And, you know, those energies just get devoted into, into more human suffering. Well, I, I kind of either feel I'm cutting this novel too short in my analysis or I'm and being too superficial or that I'm kind of going on too long. And for that reason, I'll simply leave it at that. Uh, this completes Marty and it also completes the first volume of the Library of America. So this is kind of a, a, a special day for this podcast. Now, I'm not going to go in publication order from this point forward, mostly because I really don't have all the books. Um, a second reason is if you look at the chronological order of publication of the Library of America, you end up with like Hawthorne and Mark Twain and Whitman, a lot of men um, kind of from the same period of time um, and even kind of regionally kind of lumped together a bit too much. And I would prefer to keep this podcast as diverse as I can. So starting the next episode, we'll take a look at the, a Western writer of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, the career of Frank Norris was tragically brief. Um, and we'll look at three of his novels and some of his essays over the next month or so. Um, if you have any suggestions for future volumes you'd like me to look at, um, please send them to me uh, at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed my readings of some of Melville's novels, please subscribe, rate, and share. It's going to help the podcast grow the more people know about it and the more people um, just, you know, subscribe and, and get the word out. 
I will be back in about 100 pages with Frank Norris's brutal criticism of elite bachelorhood and gender inequality in Vandover and the Brute. Thanks for listening. My lover stands on golden sand and watches the ship that go I could fly like birds on high